The Lifestylist, episode 185, featuring Thomas Jones. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. I'd like to invite you to join me in a course that I've been participating in put on by one of our former show guests, Lacey Phillips. If you go to freeandnative.com forward slash Luke, you're going to find a suite of amazing online courses all about manifestation. Now, if you don't know who Lacey Phillips is, you may quite possibly be living under a rock or you're just not into manifestation. So let's manifest your interest. You can go back and hear Lacey way back on episode 96, which came out last year, and most recently on episode 180. Lacey is a manifestation advisor of the highest order. She specializes in unblocking low self-worth. It's a woman-funded, woman-run business that's completely zero waste. Her courses are a manifestation process that's very easy to follow. She has a very specific formula. And like I said, I've been doing it and it's working. I'm not even playing. Her stuff is based on the teachings of neuroscience. This is how the brain works. It's about working with the plasticity of the mind and removing those blocks. This is not your typical woo-woo, sort of you know feel-good, unicorns and rainbows process of thinking positive. This is really getting into the deep subconscious and getting rid of that childhood programming and even just you know having the desire to call in the money or the partner that you want through hypnosis and deep meditation that are included in the course. And her courses, you know, would depend on which one you take, they only take about 20 minutes a day. Very approachable, quick, accessible. You can do it from anywhere you have an internet connection. So I'm learning a lot. I'll probably end up digging in quite a bit uh, to her stuff and taking some of the other ones. I'm doing the opulence one because I'm working on the cash money right now. And I'm finding it to be very effective. And that's why I wanted to share it with you. So if you want to get down with some manifestation of your dreams and goals, go to freeandnative.com forward slash Luke. That's freeandnative.com forward slash Luke. Use the code Luke at checkout and save 10% off. If you were lucky enough to hear episode 175 with Carly Stein, then you're going to perfectly understand why I'm so excited to tell you about Beekeepers Naturals, the best bee product company in the world. If you missed 175, I'm going to encourage you right now to go back and check it out. Now, I've been into bee products for a long time. I take propolis, the bee pollen, the honey, the royal jelly, all of that. But it's kind of a guessing game when you go to the health food store to figure out which one's the best, which one's really organic. Does that even mean anything? Turns out not so much in many cases. But when it comes to a company like Beekeepers Naturals, you know that you are getting the most pure and most potent bee products on the planet and that the bees are being protected and taken care of. Now, a lot of people just use bees for their amazing products and kind of abuse them, to be honest. Not to get crazy here. I mean, I know it's only a little bee, but they're a crucial part of our entire ecology on planet Earth. So not only taking from the bees is important, but giving back to the bees is equally as important. 
and Beekeepers Naturals does that. But more than anything, just straight up, they make the best tasting and the most powerful bee products on the market. So I'd really love for you to get over there and check them out. You can find them at beekeepersnaturals.com. That's beekeepersnaturals.com. If you use the code LIFESTYLIST, you will save 20% off your order. If you're just starting out over there and you don't know what to get, I'm going to recommend that you try Bee Powered because that's got all of the superfoods from the hive in one jar. It's delicious. It's super potent. And I'm on this stuff uh, almost every day. I can't have it every day because then I go through a jar in like four days because I'm just nuts like that. But this stuff is just absolutely insanely powerful and pure. And it's tested for pesticides and toxins. It's clean. It's legit. So go to beekeepersnaturals.com. Use the code LIFESTYLIST to save 15%. The auditory experience you're having right now is called the Lifestylist Podcast. My name is Luke Story. I'm the host of this here show. I've been doing this for a couple years. If you're new to the podcast, I'd like to formally welcome you. It's now 2019. We're in our third episode of the year. So you've arrived at the right place. If you like learning about personal development, health, spirituality, meditation, relationships, becoming happier, more fulfilled, more in love with your life, this is where we do it. If you're a longtime listener, welcome back. It's the new year. I've got some great stuff in store for you guys. I'm going to be doing a bunch of bonus episodes this year. I'm going to be diving deeper into the spirituality, into the psychology, into the inner game. I'm only going to be covering health topics if they're like a mind-blowing topic, but I'm just going to tell you, man, I have some crazy stuff coming up, including next week's show with Kim Anami, Passion and Pleasure, the ultimate sex episode. I'm just going to warn you right now, if you have kids around, do not listen to next week's episode. It is hardcore, hardcore, hardcore. I mean, we don't even swear that much, but it's just very sexually graphic. Speaking of sexually graphic, in a few weeks, I've got one coming up on circumcision. Whoa, dude. Seriously, I'm I'm covering the deep cuts this year. No pun intended. Wow, I can't believe that just happened. That was totally not funny. Uh, but as it is, when you're a podcast host and you're alone in your room on a microphone, sometimes it just rolls like that. What's up with today's show? Today's show is featuring, oh man, I love this guy, Thomas M. Jones. Recorded this out in New York City. He's a New York-based psychotherapist. Uh, He co-developed and founded the breakthrough technology called the Paradox Process. He also authored the book, Love Games, The Hidden Rules of Relationship. Here's what we talk about in this episode with old Thomas M. Jones. The two things that can easily affect change in individuals, suffering from addictions. How the narratives we build around the sometimes painful feelings that all human beings experience get us into trouble. Some of the most common childhood experiences that set us up for unhappiness and negative patterns. How using key phrases can subconsciously trigger a meditation process even while you're busy doing other things. Why it is so scary to face your lower self or the ugly parts of yourself. The three different levels of motivation, ego, money, and contribution. How the fantasy of relationships keeps us from experiencing a deeper connection with our partners. What it really means to fall in love the two most common reasons that people break up, and what you really need to know about yourself and your potential partner before entering into a relationship. And then finally, how to engage in healthy conflict with your partner, aka the right way to have a fight. That was one of my favorite parts of this particular conversation. I just want to also let you know, in case you're unaware, that I would say 99.9% of these interviews I do are also featured in video format 
on YouTube. So make sure to jump over to YouTube and subscribe to my channel there. I kind of forget about that sometimes. I know oftentimes people uh, like to actually watch the interviews and not just listen to them. So I thought I'd let you know that. I also want to uh, invite you to follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is at Luke Story. And in fact, as I sit here and record this into the microphone, I'm staring at my phone over here to my right, which is on top of a speaker. And I'm actually running an Instagram live right now, showing everyone what it's like to do the behind the scenes production work on a podcast. So if you follow me on Insta, that's what the kids call it these days. You know what I'm saying? Insta. Uh, really, if <laughs> it's ridiculous, if you follow me on Instagram, did I just say Insta? I have to stop saying that. That is not, you can't be 48 and say Insta. I'm just setting a rule for myself. If you follow me on the Instagrams, uh, here's what's going to happen. I do tons of live feeds of these interviews. Now the sound and the video, of course, is not as good as like the final, you know, the final cut, which goes on YouTube. But if you, if you really want to see the nitty gritty of this crazy life that I'm living and all of the amazing guests that I interview and my adventures traveling and biohacking and doing all of the things that I do. Uh, I bring my phone into a Kundalini yoga class and just set it there as I pass out doing breath work and all kinds of, I think, interesting and sometimes educational or at least informative uh, posts. So please follow me on Instagram. That's at Luke Story. All right. So I think that's all we've got to say, man. I just want to jump right into this. And I want to welcome you to the show. If you're new, thank you so much for joining us. If you've been listening for a while, you know the drill, man. Share this episode with a friend. If somebody wants to be happier and have healthier relationships and uncover what's blocking them, this might just be the episode to change their life. And with that, I'd love to welcome our guest, Thomas M. Jones. Thomas Jones of The Paradox Process. Here we are in New York City on the Lifestylist Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I've heard some good things about you. Well, I hope most of them were good, yes. Most of them were. I do my best to not create wreckage these days. So here we are in your amazing offices in, uh, what are we, in Midtown here? Yeah. Ish? We're in, 37th yeah. Street and 37th 8th and Avenue. 8th, yeah. Yeah. So very cool vibe in here. Uh, funny thing is, though, I, I, I still don't, you know, I've been coming to New York work for about 10 years. And I still don't realize sometimes there's two versions of an address. Yes. So we're at 306 West 37th. And I, and I walked up to that address and I was like, it's like a taco stand. <laughs> and I, I walked in there, I pressed the elevator. I'm like, this is strange as well. You know, maybe they have a creative, sometimes a creative space will be in a loft and the building's a little shoddy in right. the lobby and you just roll with it and then you get inside and it's amazing. And then thank God, um, I texted Valerie and she's like, I think you're in the loading dock of 306. <laughs> and then we walk in and it's this beautiful lobby. It's a like very classy building. So No, I know. At one point she hit the elevator and I knew she was going to get you because it took us 15 minutes to figure out how to get to our own place the first time we got here. Yeah. So here we are. So if you come to one of the workshops or you come to see him uh, at the Paradox Process, know that you're in the wrong place if you smell tacos and carnitas. <laughs> Okay, so here we are. So in 1973, you were head of a therapeutic community and you began exploring ways to help people with addictions, childhood trauma issues, negative patterns, and things like that. Yeah, um, I got a job with the Addiction Services Agency and I was working with kids, 14, 15, 16-year-old kids that were remanded from the court system. So these were the bad kids, right? Yeah, I was one of those. 
Yeah, I tried to be one of those. I, I wasn't cool enough. Well, you're wearing all black. You at least got the badass look hey, going. <laughs> this is New York. <laughs> I got the New York uniform. But yeah, I started working with with uh, with these kids, and I made a radical discovery. I discovered that, you know, you think of kids getting high, and you think of them looking to escape. And I started to see that the reality was they weren't looking to escape. They were looking to find reality. They were looking to feel like themselves again. They were looking to be out of pain. And it was intriguing to me because all the treatments that we have for drug addiction, they're all bullshit. None of them work. And it just exacerbates the problem. And the real issue is this incredible pain that people walk around in. And so, oddly enough, they were the most responsive to working with. They they were young, they were into drugs, but they were still not jaundiced. They weren't, they, you know, they hadn't hardened yet. And so it was a great experience to play with them and to kind of work with them and see if I can get them out of pain and so forth and so on. I did get fired from that job because I had a radical point of view, because I kept trying to make the point that drugs are not the problem. And so ultimately we parted ways after a couple of years. And then I met a Another guy who was also kind of disenfranchised by the system. He had run another therapeutic community and he discovered the same kind of things. So what was interesting is that we'd both just broken up in relationships. And I was heartbroken. I was devastated. And he was a mess too. It was a wrong number. He called me in the middle of the night, like two, three in the morning, right? And he's like, is Bill there? And I was like, no. But who are you? What are you doing up? What's going on? And we got into this conversation and it was surprising how similar our history and our backgrounds were. So we started comparing notes and we started musing on what if we created a center that would actually dedicate itself to finding the solutions to this pain, to this human condition that we all walk around heartbroken and feeling not good enough and so forth and so on. And so we got together And we started putting it together with people that we kind of ran into or volunteered or that we solicited to just work on eliminating this emotional pain. That's where it started. Yeah, you're definitely uh, on track there from my own sub- subjective experience, as I said, being you know a kid who was quite lost for a long time. Uh, that when eventually, we were talking about scotch for a minute there before we recorded, I'm like, <laughs> I haven't tasted scotch in almost 22 years. Thank God for everyone's safety. But when I first um, stopped drinking when I was 26 years old, I mean, I look back on how naive I was and how misinformed I was, but because so many of my problems seem to have come about as a result of, you know, using drugs and drinking and all this mm. excessive behavior that I truly believed once I checked myself into rehab and just stopped all that, that I would just be this happy, amazing guy of, of rich character and <laughs> would be, you know, at peace and ma- able to make a contribution in the world. And I imagined I would start doing yoga and, you know, juicing and just be this pillar of health and happiness. And uh, wow, what a long journey it's been. Yeah. To uncover, as you said, the root causes of why I was so uncomfortable and in so much pain to begin with, you know? And that that really is the crux of it. I think a lot of people, even in recovery, kind of, not that it's not there in recovery, but many people miss that as I did just because on the at face value, it looks like all your problems are caused by the behavior that results from the abuse of drugs and alcohol. And there are actually some kind of solution. There, 
So, exactly. It's not the problem, it's the solution. Yeah. And so you got to really figure out, well, if this is the solution, what's the problem? You know, why are we walking around with our hearts hanging off? Why are we feeling the way we do? And more importantly, because, you know, you can get into why, and any psychologist worth their salt will tell you in a year and a half why you're in that kind of pain. But the real issue is how. How do you get out of that pain? How do you learn? How do you transcend that pain? How do you transform yourself? What is that for? And so we started playing with pretty much every modality that was out there. We, we did primal therapy, which is hysterical if you've never done it. <laughs> like primal screaming and Scream stuff? therapy, yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah, I've done a lot of that. A lot of fun, very powerful, certainly opens the channels to your feelings and emotions, but it doesn't really resolve anything. It does get you in touch with them. But we did, we did everything. We did transactional analysis and gestalt therapy and CBT and everything that we could get our hands on. Nothing really eliminated that pain. And, you know, that was like the holy grail for me. I wasn't even interested in a modality that didn't address that because I think that's the key to your happiness. If you can start to address that underlying pain, those underlying issues, and start making a difference in them, now you've got the world where you want it. Now you can have the experience that you want. When we're talking about this orientation to life that's so painful, how much of that comes from experiences you've had as a kid versus what you do with those experiences through your adolescence? In other words, you know, there's, there's abuse, there's trauma, there's neglect, uh, abandonment, et cetera, which is the initial sort of wound. And then there's how you contextualize that as a kid and the sort of framework you build around that. How, how are those related when it comes to undoing them? Okay. So we're born into the human condition, which somebody should, <laughs> should give us a manual when we arrive, right? Right. You know, we're going to have this set of feelings. You're going to feel not good enough. You're going to feel like you don't belong. You're going to feel like a fraud and a phony. You're going to feel like you, you don't fit in. You're going to have this set of feelings that you were born into. Now, that in itself is an issue, but not a problem. When we start to contextualize it, when we start to create a narrative based on those feelings, and now suddenly I'm not good enough because of X, Y, and Z, or nobody loves me, and my mother doesn't love me, my father doesn't love me, the world isn't going to love me. And so you start to build story instead of recognizing that these are the standard issue feelings of human beings, and they can be managed on that level. And so I think, you know, good question. We're born into a set of feelings, and then we start to make story or narrative or our personal history out of it. And I think that's where we get in trouble. Because... And then, you know, mental health being what it is, people try to unwind or unmake the story. And that's really just figuring out a story, okay? That should really take you about 10 minutes to figure out your story, okay? I wasn't loved, I got hurt, I got rejected, this happened, I'm no good, bam. That's your story. What's more interesting is what are those feelings about? And what do you do with those feelings? How do, you, how do you make a difference in them? And so, again, you know, we tried everything, okay? I won't say this in public, but including drugs. We tried everything because it was a matter of 
how do you get out of this pain? And can you get out of this pain in a way that you then figure out how you got out of it? And so ultimately we started tinkering with a meditation, not because we were particularly oriented to meditation. I'd, I'd never meditated before, neither had he. But we started wondering if you could direct the mind through specific mantras to follow your instructions. And so we discovered that there are ways of talking to the mind and meditating on that that actually allows the mind to follow a set of instructions. And this was exciting. This was revolutionary. I took an issue that was really kind of central to me. I had a terrible relationship with my father. I didn't think he loved me. You know, I basically grew up unloved. I left my house at 16. I was, you know, destroyed. And so this was an issue for me that I thought, if this changes, then we've got something. If it can affect this issue, then I'll believe in this process. And so that's where we started. We started with this simple mantra meditation. So how does the the meditation allow you to get the perspective on finding the root cause? Yeah. I find I find when I meditate I often oftentimes get um I get solutions sometimes in the moment and sometimes after. But in a sense, and I guess it depends on the type of meditation, you sounds like you have a, a specific technique, but with like a mantra-based meditation like Vedic, I mean, you're sort of dipping out of that whole thing. And then, you know, the hope is that when one comes out of meditation, you have a little more separation between you and the sensations in your body, the emotions, the thoughts, and you have a little better chance of having that witness perspective as you go on through your day. Yeah. What, what was your framework for meditation in terms of Mastering the mind and the emotions. Yeah, so to call it a meditation in a way is a misnomer because we were identifying issues that had an emotional charge and specifically directing the mind to start resolving those issues, to start going to the source of those issues. And so when you meditate in that very directed way, you start to see that issue. You start to see pictures and images of that issue. It's not like a standard meditation where you're just generally piecing out and right. kind of <laughs> right, right. getting objective. I see. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. So that you're really sense. targeting whatever that issue is. And what's fascinating is that there's a part of you that understands what... Ha- there's a part of you that is not attached to these issues, that is objective, And you can get to that part of you and it starts to give you insight and information about what really happened. So for instance, in the issue with my dad, what ultimately happened, and this was weeks of meditation, by the way, so I don't think, you know, I'm cured instantly, right? Uh, What ultimately happened is that I saw that this man actually loved me. And I saw it not as a concept or as an idea. I got the experience that as terrible as he was at trying to deliver that love, he was actually trying to love me and that he did love me. And to me, that was astonishing. Because again, I'd lived my life feeling unloved. And so to suddenly arrive at the absolute conviction that I was loved was shocking to me, transformative. That's interesting. So 
I guess the difference there between, as you said, a meditation where you're just kind of zenned out is that you're setting a more powerful intention. It's much more directed. So you're creating that space and then out of that space, revelatory yeah. uh, concepts and um, issues arise that you're able to then work through. I would say the difference is a broad range med- meditation as opposed to a tight focused meditation on the specific issue that is driving you. You know, all these negative feelings and emotions, they're drivers for our choices and behaviors. And so you're being driven by these forces that you're not even in touch with. And so when you start getting in touch with them, you suddenly have a lot more freedom. You have a lot more power. You can turn those drivers off. You can change them. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, we did this meditation. We thought, this is great. (laughs) going to beat a path to our door. Well, we couldn't give it away, right? We try to get people to do this, and they saw it work. They absolutely saw it work, but they weren't willing to invest the time and effort in sitting and working and directing in a way that would get the results that they want or what they need. I can imagine that that could have been a little more difficult in New York City, too, than elsewhere. <laughs> you know? I mean, this is not a city known for like just chilling out and taking a look at yourself and being introspective. I mean, this, is, this city is so proactive and so yang in, in general in terms of its energy. I mean, now I find there's a lot of spiritual centers and yoga and meditation. I mean, it's, it's come a long way even in the 10 years that I've been coming here regularly, but I imagine going back in time that it, it was a tough sell probably, right? <laughs> Forget it. You couldn't get people to do it. Yeah. There are some peace pockets here now, but... I like that, peace pockets. Yeah, there But are. there was madness, right? And yeah. So, you know, in a very commercial sense, we were trying to figure out how do you make this thing, how do you get people to do this? And so we devised a way to trigger this meditation through what we call keys or key phrases. and so. You could encapsulate, you could create a trigger, just like a macro on a computer, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you hit return and all kinds of things go on there. Well, you can kind of set this meditation up or this process up so that if you hit a keystroke, it will start that meditation and it will do that work subconsciously while you're consciously engaged in other things. Oh, cool. Oh, it was awesome. And you know, it was hard for us to believe because we were experiment. we were tinkering, right? Like maybe it can do this or maybe it can do that. So we needed someone unwitting to experiment on. So I called up my mother, oh, really? <laughs> who is always mad at my father, right? So I knew here's a woman who's got an issue, right? And so I kind of walked her through this using these key phrases and she didn't quite know what I was doing, Right. But I had her check before and after. You're upset with him? Yes, I'm upset with him. Afterwards, she was like, I said, how do you feel? She said, well, I'm not upset. But what did you do? And she got all suspicious. And I said, I got to (laughs) go. Figured, I just wanted to see it work. And so we experimented on hundreds of people to see if this trigger, see if these triggers could actually do what we thought it was doing. Can you give us an example of what one of those trigger phrases might look like? Sure. Well, if you know anything about computer programming, you create a key or a key phrase. We got better at naming them, by the way. Uh, The first one was direct phase. 
don't ask me why we picked that. That was just such a lame thing. But we thought, well, you say it directly, what the issue is, and it phases out the upset and it phases in an understanding. A more intuitive one is feeling clear. So feeling clear is a key or a key phrase that when you trigger feeling clear, it triggers a set of if-then propositions to the mind. If there is anger, go to the source of this anger. Show the insight here. If it's pain, go to the source of this pain. Allow this to be seen and understood on a conscious level. And it was a set of instructions for the mind to follow. Literally a set of instructions. And at first we thought, that's a lot for the mind to remember or take in. Then we started doing a little research and realized that the mind can handle 2 to 8 billion bits of information per second. So the 20 or 30 lines of code that we were giving it were nothing for it. And so this really revolutionized the process. This allowed us to make it very much on point, identifying the issue, going after the feelings within it, clearing the emotional charge, and getting the insight afterwards. And at what point did you name it the paradox process? Well, here's what we realized when we were doing the meditation. We realized we were trying all different ways of kind of provoking the mind to reveal what it would reveal, to, to clear the charge, to do this, to do that. And we realized that by presenting to the mind, it's impossible for me to clear this emotional charge. Somehow the mind is a problem solver, and it loved that kind of paradoxical phrasing in a way that it almost said, impossible? Well, I'll show you. And so it became interesting. You know, if you, if you look at the Japanese cones, they have these paradoxes that they would meditate on. The river is frozen and the rocks are moving, right? And you'd be like, really? How, how's that work? And so we started using our meditation on these paradoxes. And we saw, well, not only does it resolve the paradox, you know, you see the molecules of the rocks moving, so the rocks actually are flowing, and you see the river frozen, so it actually is solid. But what was more interesting is where it put you in order to see that, because it automatically put you in a place above it all, in a place that was much more objective. So it created this kind of triangle of higher consciousness where you would have seemingly divergent or opposite issues that you would have to be in this position in order to understand it, in order to rationalize it. So that's kind of where the paradox process came. And so you, you know, discovered something that was working. It proved to have efficacy in helping people overcome these blocks, came up with a name for it. And then, I mean, was this something that you and your partner trademarked and made a thing? And if so, when, when did that happen? Like, was it the early 80s or, you know, how long has this been going on now, you know, under its official sort of umbrella? Well, yeah, we weren't very business savvy either. So we didn't know, oh, we got to encode this or we got to so around 1985, we decided we have to somehow make it official and trademark it and copyright it and do all that stuff. Right. But again, you know, it wasn't our motivation to make a million dollars with this thing. It was our motivation to solve the issue of personal pain, to solve the issue of emotional pain. 
and to find something that's going to incisively go after the issue you're upset about in a way that changes it. And what happened to your partner? Is he still in the picture? And if not, when did, when did that split happen and why? We didn't really split. We still talk once a week and we still, oh, cool. yeah, we still compare notes. No, it's not like I'm mad at him forever. He sucks now. <laughs> no, we still talk. Uh, he still teaches. You know, we compare notes. Oh, cool. Uh, he's kind of semi, semi-retired upstate. Oh, okay. And so, you know, he's a little older. And so that's great. That's fine. You know, I'm happy to carry this on. Awesome. Yeah. Wow, man. Interesting stuff. And so, you know, when we're talking about finding a way to uncover and dispel with negative emotion, we're talking about a, you know, a path of personal development or spiritual awakening, however one chooses to contextualize that, is not the experience of negative emotions part of the process of evolution? And would you say that this path is the harder path in a sense, because, you know, you're choosing to face these things that are really uncomfortable. I guess what I'm saying is, you know what I mean? It's, I think a lot of people like my naivete when I thought, oh, I'll just get sober and I'll be happy. It's like, oh no, I need to really face the shadow and face those ugly parts of my personality and face that pain. And that that path, although it's probably the fastest way to evolve is difficult. It's not unicorns and rainbows and it's not like you just elevate yourself above all that stuff and leave it be. You really have to get in there and kind of dig through it. You do. And you know, one of the things I tell people is growth is not for the faint-hearted. You've got to constantly be confronting you and constantly be dealing with those negative feelings and emotions. And you're right, there is great value in them. But the value is not in the story that it creates or the sensations that it causes. The value is in the insight that it covers that when you uncover that emotional charge, you gain knowledge and you gain freedom. And so it's kind of a game in a way where you go after your upsets and, you know, you get very objective about this subjective self, right? I've dealt with this idiot for a long time. <laughs> I, know, I know a lot of his tricks and a lot of what he's up to, right? So I can kind of watch him and manage him now in so much better ways. I used to take it very personally. And so the more you see yourself objectively, the more you can just work that instrument. You know, every time I process, I gain another piece of freedom or another piece of knowledge that is useful for me and is useful for the people that I work with. And I've kind of taken it on as my mission that I'm going to go after every issue that people have and see what's the heart of this issue? What is there to learn? What is there to let go of? How do you manage this? And so I think you're right. You got to put your helmet on because the shit's flying, right? <laughs> it's not It's not for the faint-hearted. Yeah, I, um, I've definitely experienced that for myself. Um, but, you know, in a sense now, I think the beauty of it is the more that those unseen sort of shadow elements of self get revealed, many of them prove to be kind of boogeymen. Mm. You know, it's like the feelings that I've been so terrified to feel and have gone to great lengths to avoid once I've actually found, um, you know, framework like what you do in different ways to, to face those and kind of move through them that it's sort of like, oh, that was, that was just a feeling. For example, this morning, someone 
um, that I was in a relationship with for a few years sent me a really lovely text and just said, hey, happy birthday. Um, I know we, you know, we drift apart from time to time, but just know that I'm so glad that I met you and I'll always love you. And that was the, I read that text right when I opened my eyes and I felt this swell of emotion that was kind of gratitude, but also a sense of loss and a, a little bit of a sense of sadness because there was something there that I had hoped would be something that it's now not, you right. know? right. And in the past, it would have been like, oh my God, give me sugar, give it a, you know, a feeling, oh my God, now right. dive off the freaking seventh floor balcony <laughs> to avoid having any tears or any feelings or anything like that. But knowing what I now know, that it's a sensation in the body and the body's indicating to me that there's a little more healing to be done there. You know? And so as uncomfortable as it was, I purposefully just breathed and just sat through that and just processed whatever that was without having a judgment on it. Right. And having had the sort of tenacity and courage to do that, although it was, you know, it wasn't a huge upset, but still it was something, not a preferable feeling. It wasn't like a feeling of elation or ecstasy by any means. But then immediately afterward, I got on with my day of being super happy and was in the cab on the way over here. And the, the guy was playing this Beautiful music. Uh, it was very peaceful and zen. I had a great conversation with a friend of mine back in LA who was going through some stuff. And when I got out of the cab, the cab driver said, hey, man, man, thank you so much. You're a great customer. I really enjoyed the conversation you had with your friend. <laughs> it was very uplifting, you know? And so it's like, and then, and then so goes about my day. And now here we are having a great conversation. But I think had I stuffed that and went like, oh, I don't want to feel, I don't want to feel, then would those feelings not then sort of erupt and come to the surface? Oh, yeah. In some unhealthy way or a way that I wouldn't be able to understand? Or Well, it's like squeezing a balloon, you know? You can compress it here and it's going to pop out somewhere Ooh, else. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm on the alert for my kind of emotional landscape, right? I mean, not in a hypervigilant way, but I'm aware when I go through that. And it sounds like you are too. You felt something. You understood, you know, go with it. Don't fight it. Don't interpret it. Don't, don't make anything of it. Let it be there, right? And yeah, there is some healing to be done and that's great. But every upset is an opportunity. Every, everything that kind of crosses our path is an opportunity to learn. And imagine if you just looked at every upset as just an opportunity to learn. An opportunity to learn, an opportunity to get more of yourself, your authentic self, and an opportunity to be free. So that's kind of how, at my best, I do that, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a funny thing because it's counterintuitive to allow oneself to feel uncomfortable in order to get the net result of generally feeling more comfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's weird. Yeah, it's, it's, you got to put the gun down to stop the monster, right? Oh, that's a good one. I, I like those are two. I'm gonna I'm gonna take away. When you can I, use. I'll those. listen back to this. Squeezing the balloon. That's a really good one. Some people call it whack a mole. You know, it's like yeah, oh, okay, yeah. I'll, I'll stuff down this feeling. Boink! It pops up over here. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. Let's take a moment to give a shout out to our friends over at Alatura Naturals. If you listened to episode 18 back in the day with my guest Andy Nilo, then you know all about it. This company makes the most insanely pure and powerful skincare products on the market. 
and I use their stuff. And, you know, I always say this when I'm doing these promos and I feel corny, but I use their stuff every day. I mean, it's just straight up. If you could come over here right now, walk down the hall from my podcast studio, open my bathroom medicine cabinet, you will find their clay mask, you will find their night cream, and you will find their lotion. And I use it literally every day. Well, not the clay mask. You don't do a clay mask every day. When I have time to do the clay mask, I do it. Or just when I feel like I want to get more beautiful. You know what I'm saying? So I use this stuff for the anti-aging effects. I want to take care of my skin. I get a lot of sun. I mean, that's the thing. You know, I'm not afraid of the sun, but I don't go out in the sun willy-nilly. Dude, definitely. I am protecting my skin. I'm nourishing my skin with the stuff from Alatura. So my boy Andy over there has been going at this company for a few years. He's a kindred spirit. He's a hardworking entrepreneur. I'm really happy to support them. Happy that they're supporting me. If you go to their site, they've got 1,300 testimonials. They've got a 4.9 out of 5 cumulative rating. These products are now sold in 77 countries. Andy goes all out sourcing and really looking at the research behind all of these ingredients. They're all natural, organic, very nutrient-rich ingredients that feed and nourish your skin so you can look super vibrant and young. And straight up, these things are so pure that you could eat them. And guess what? Your skin does eat everything that you put on your skin. So it's really important. That's something a lot of people miss. You know, they're eating organic, they're drinking the spring water, they're doing all the things. They're getting down with their biohacking and then they go put some freaking Jergens toxic lotion or whatever. Am I allowed to like put other brands down? I don't know. Sorry, Jergens. But you know what I'm saying. You don't want to put like toxic stuff on your skin. It soaks right in. It goes directly into your bloodstream. It bypasses your liver. Even when you like eat toxins, you at least have some organs that help filter that stuff out. Your skin is an organ that doesn't have the ability to do that. So only put the most chronic badass pure stuff on your skin if you want to get some of that here's what you do go to alaturanaturals.com and enter the code lifestylist to save 20 percent off that's a really substantial discount on these products they're very high end that's alaturanaturals.com use the code lifestylist to save 20 percent. and now back to the interview one of the things that i've been really looking at is fear. I just did an interview a few days ago with a lovely woman named Monica Berg, and she's got a book called um, Fear is Not an Option. It's a, a Kabbalistic Kabbal, yeah, approach to dealing with fear. Very mm-hmm. interesting uh, book and interesting interview. And so it got me just thinking about some of these motives and looking at my own fear and fears of those um, people that I know. And I think most people, when they're faced with being proactive about their life and um, exploring different opportunities in business and relationship would say that, you know, they don't really put themselves out there because they're afraid that they'll be rejected or they'll, they're afraid um, that they'll fail in doing it. And I've heard you talk about fears in the way that what we're really afraid of in many cases is the responsibility that comes with being successful. And a lot of people are unaware of their fear of success is actually one of the main restrictions. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I really identify with that perspective. Sure. I think we're not afraid to fail. I think we're very good at failing. I think we mastered failing. (laughs) Yes. Some (laughs) of us more than others. Not a problem, you know. Um, But when it comes to succeeding or taking the responsibility or being who you can actually be, it's intimidating. You know, you sit across from a room full of people and you ask them, would you like to now be your absolute best? 
And they'll all nod their head and say, yeah, sounds great to me, right? They would jump out of their skin. They would be terrified because it's an awesome responsibility to be everything that you can be. Think of how exhausted you'd be after one day. <laughs> you'd be like, can I take a break? Is there, is there daylight somewhere? So I think when you anticipate being your best or really succeeding or getting everything that you want, there's an awe factor, an intimidation to it that almost instantly feels like a drain of your energy. Like, ah, oh, I don't know how I can do that. But here's what's interesting, that when you actually are in that flow, when you are at your best, that version of you has all the energy in the world. That version of you is like, why wasn't I doing this all along? But you don't know that from here. From here, you're like, that's a lot. I, I can't do that. Yeah, that's that's so true. I relate to that a lot. It's like um, sometimes I'll put myself in a position where I pitch for something. Hey, I want to you know interview someone or do a talk or workshop somewhere and that smaller self of me is almost hoping that they say no. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm like, I kind oh, of would, I know. Pre- I would pre- on one level, I would prefer the rejection because if they're like, yeah, great, let's do it. It's like, oh God, now I have to actually show up and have the courage to really put myself into it. And then what if, you know? So I, I relate to that a lot. That's I mean, very I, funny. I, I had that the other night. I, I had to give this talk, right? And again, the part of me was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And then I realized, and I said it to somebody out there, I think I said it to Christine, you know, the guy who's talking now is not the guy who's going to show up. The guy who's going to show up is fine. He loves it. He's, you know, he's great. But this guy doesn't want to go there. So it's an interesting divergence between who you are right now and who you will be then. So I tend to Uh trust the guy that's going to show up now, but I totally get it. You know, That's That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I I think for me with the success fears, it's like the responsibility that comes with it and that when your life enlarges, you have to show up more for it. When when you're contracted and sort of restricting yourself, um, there's a certain false sense of security in that. There is. It's (laughs) like swaddling a blanket, right? That you're, You're wrapped tight. But it's interesting. I think we have three different levels of motivation as we go through life. The first level is ego, which, you know, I was good at that. I, greater glory of me, I could do anything. The second level is money. You know, you've got to make something in the world. You've got to, you know. But the third level is, is contribution. And I think what pulls me forward, because I'm lazy, by the way, what pulls me forward is the idea that I have something to offer the world And I got to get out of my way and offer it as cleanly and as kind of powerfully as I can. So I think at the end of the day, when you realize, got to contribute, got to put something out there. I think anyway, for me, it helps me get out of my own way a little bit. Absolutely. It seems as as, um, some of us get a bit older, that that progression starts to naturally unfold to a degree. Do you think that that's something that for someone who's somewhat conscious, is just going to inevitably happen as you start to face your, you know, professional retirement and eventually demise. That you go, wow, I, I better take what I've sort of cultivated here in this lifetime and put it out there. Does that happen because of age, or is that also available to someone who's eighteen that gets that principle early and just gets a head start on it? 
Well, I think there are levels of that. You know, I see it in my clients all the time. I see that as they progress, their motivation changes. But I think, and I would have loved to try this theory, I think it, it's available when we're younger. I think we're just so busy with what we think is important that we don't focus as much. And that ultimately, yeah, I could certainly picture, look at Malala, for instance. I can picture somebody who is just about contribution. You know, she's out there in the world and she's going to make a difference in women's education and she's just incredibly driven. Uh, so I think, is it available for young? Sure. I didn't pick up on it, but I'm yeah, sure it's... <laughs> I, I guess now that I've done everything else, right. now that I've thoroughly indulged myself, I got to contribute. <laughs> Perhaps what it is too is that some people set out from those other two primary motivations of ego, of becoming someone, and then you know the financial security or prosperity or whatever that looks like. And then at a certain point, you achieve some of that and you realize, oops, that wasn't the be-all, end-all answer. What's left? Oh, I get it. I have to make a contribution. And, and maybe it seems as though that happens for older people just because it takes a bit of sequential time in order to arrive at that realization. Yeah, I think you got to go through those stages yeah, in and order then, to get there. Maybe those of us that are doing that at 18, 20 years old and already hitting the contribution phase have already discovered that in past lifetimes. <laughs> they're, they're like, I'm not going to waste another one. <laughs> uh, something I want to... Uh, Something I want to talk about. You wrote a book called Love Games, and uh, admittedly and unfortunately, I have not had a chance to pick it up uh, in the whirlwind that I have in um, in New York, but I did see that as I was doing my research on you. And I definitely want to cover, perhaps in the second half of this conversation, relationships, because it's a something I'm deeply fascinated by at this point in my life and wanting to learn more about um, in hopes of becoming more successful at it. And based on feedback from listeners uh, to the show that a lot of people are very much interested in this now too, because of course there's our own inner work to do, but there's a certain inherent uh, self-centeredness, I think, that's uh, somewhat of a trap when it comes to spiritual exploration and personal development, because it's just all about me. And if I don't, you know, have another to also relate to, you're missing kind of half of it. So... I'd like to know kind of what the premise is of the book Love Games and what prompted you to write that and, you know, kind of where that has led your work into the relationship stuff that you do, which I know is a huge part of the uh, paradox process here. Yeah, one of the things that drove me to that, to relationships, was, again, this idea of people being in pain, right? Watching people suffer in relationship, you know, probably... Three out of five clients that come in here come in here because they're heartbroken or because they're looking to find love. And it was just shocking to me the nonsense that's perpetrated about love in this culture. You know, you look at Hollywood and Hallmark and you see the nonsense that they're putting out there and the ideas of what it's supposed to be or what you're supposed to get or how you're supposed to feel. And I think it leaves people so lost and misguided that there's no chance of them having real relationship or connecting or even knowing it if they're there. So it kind of drove me to do a little myth-busting about relationship, that it's not this, it's, it's, you know, it's not Hollywood, it's not romance, it's not that, you know, that initial attraction that we're so excited about, you know, when you're crazy about somebody, you know, what if you knew... (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, I know that one. You know that one, right? High on the chemicals of love. Oh, absolutely. Nature's greatest trick. Yes. It is nature's greatest trick. But I think there's a purpose for that trick. I think what we're really attracted to on some spiritual lesson is our lessons, the things that we're supposed to be learning. We're drawn to the people that are our teachers. And you know, if you told somebody that early on, I think they'd walk away like, I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> so what are some of the myths that you could identify that we're led to believe in this culture from Hallmark cards and this well, sense think- of sort of shallow romanticism or whatever it is? I think people have an expectation that because they're in love, that they should be known, that they should be understood. And I think that's complete nonsense. Okay. You know, that's as if when you're in love, your partner is supposed to be psychic. They're supposed to suddenly understand everything about you. And that's ridiculous. You know, the a good, healthy relationship is about exploring and discovering and revealing and sharing. And that's how you build partnership. But you know, I think what we're taught gives us such strange expectations about what we're supposed to have. You know, we expect that that initial hit is going to continue, and that's nonsense, okay? We don't have the neurochemistry to continue like that. We expect that we should be able to communicate without understanding who each other actually is. We have all of these, ex- we expect sex to stay good without us particularly doing anything about it. And I think, you know, a relationship is a work site. And when you understand that... (laughs) I'm picturing like... uh, Singularly unromantic, right? (laughs) I'm picturing, uh, you know, orange cones and warning signs around your, you know, your bed. Um, Yeah. Don't go near that communication area. There's a pitfall there. Yeah. But it is. It's a work site. And... You know, everybody has the goodwill in the beginning of a relationship to feel great about each other. Oh, I love everything about you. You're so cool. And then when, again, that chemistry kind of starts to fade, you're like, what exactly was I thinking? What's going on here? What are are the different stages uh, that you could sort of uh, demark in the course of a relationship? You know, starting with that first phase of, I guess we could call infatuation, almost a biochemical infatuation and chemistry and excitement. And yeah, that's the honeymoon stage. Okay. That's a wonderful stage. And again, you can get a lot done there. And the reality is this it's not all myth. The honeymoon stage is where you actually get to see the potential of who somebody can be. But it isn't who somebody is. It's who they can be. Right. After that stage fades, then you go through a stage of differentiation. You know, the honeymoon stage is like, isn't it great that we love Chinese food and, you know, we both love foreign movies? The second stage is like, oh, there's me and there's you. And you feel this sense of separation. A lot of people break up in that stage because they think, well, the... The fun is over. The, the kind of hit is over. And that's not true. It's a stage where you're supposed to be checking in with yourself and honestly assessing, how does this fit in my world? How does this relationship integrate into my life? And the third stage is integration, where you actually start to collaborate. You start to play together. You start to agree to go forward together. And that's a stage where if you're smart, you'll start to dream together, you'll start to plan together, you'll start to build together. 
And then ultimately you get into a stage of real partnership where you have enough common goals and common interests, you have good communication, that you've worked through the issues that you have in a way that there's a real working partnership there. But, you know, if you think of kind of taking up a business partner, you would never do it the way you do a relationship. You know, we find somebody hot and we're like, that's, that's for me, right? No interview, no nothing, right? They're hired for the job. But the reality is you'd never do that with a business partner. That's very interesting, right? You would never, for example, you know, in the first four weeks of a new business uh, collaboration, be like, hey, let's split the <laughs> let's split the business 50-50 or, you know, get an office building or, you know, whatever the things, <laughs> right. you know, raise capital, whatever the things are when one starts a business. That's, that's an interesting correlation. I like that as a metaphor. Yeah. And originally my business was going to be my book was going to be called This Business of Love. Because if we looked at it in a more business-like way, singularly unromantic, we would be more effective and powerful. You know, if you have a business partner and they have an expectation that you're going to take care of them, you'd be like, what? (laughs) No. (laughs) But a romantic partner, that's a reasonable expectation in this culture. You know, ah, he's going to take care of me. She's going to take care of me. Right. I think many of us enter into relationship with a feeling of being incomplete, thinking that, you know, the lock to our key is out there somewhere and then we're going to be fixed as a result of them. Oh, you'll be fixed. All right. So (laughs) (laughs) here's the real experience of love. You know, everybody thinks that the experience of being in love is the love that you get, but that's not true at all. The experience of being in love is about you being thrilled to give. When you first meet somebody that you're crazy about, you, you're figuring out ways, oh, how can I thrill them? How can I make them happy? How can I excite them? How can I, you know, what can I give? What can I do? That's the experience of being in love because you're so full. You're suddenly the best version of you, the most giving, the most loving, the most thoughtful, the most generous. That's the experience of being in love. And so we quickly go from there to collapsing into, what am I getting? What do I want? What are you doing for me? What's going on here? And so I think, talk about myths. That's the biggest myth there is. People don't even know what love is. How long do you think it takes if, if you, you know, form a, a bond with someone romantically and you really want to get to know who they are? Because we're putting our best foot forward and if we have a deep interest in that person, of course, we're going to, you know, kind of tuck away some of our nasty habits and things like that. How long do you think generally it takes for our real selves to be revealed, you know, chronologically? Do you think we come out at six months, generally nine months, a year? (laughs) Never. Is that it? You know, we moved into this office and I didn't notice the crack in the ceiling for six months, right? I think that's a fair assessment of relationship, that you're not going to even see the beginning of who somebody is until that time. And that's okay, because there's work to be done in between, and there's still a lot of goodwill. And in in the beginning of a relationship, it's all goodwill, so that's a great time to build. It's a great time to explore. It's a great time to build communication. So I think, again, singularly unromantic, but... Six months to a year before you know who somebody is. Yeah, that's been my experience. In terms of 
meeting someone that you, you think has potential to be a partner that's aligned, how do you, how do I phrase this question? It's like, I think in, in my history, I've, I've tended to go too fast in mm. many ways. And just, you know, the first date, you're telling your whole life story and developing this sort of false sense of intimacy without having any real framework, rules, boundaries, guidelines, just, this feels awesome, let's just proceed forward and kind of, you know, put the blinders on and hope for the best. What would you advise if someone is not in a relationship and is, is um, exploring that and they meet someone they're interested in? How do you, how do you uh, ensure that you pace the getting to know that person in a way that's healthy, that's going to uh, improve your chances for longevity if it is, in fact, a good fit? Well, here's advice that I give that almost nobody takes. To build a friendship with that person, to get to know them, to find out, you know, in the book, which you haven't read. Um, now I'm going to, because I'm, I'm learning a lot to. here. Yeah, There's 50 questions to ask a potential partner. Oh, amazing. I don't want you to ask them all at once. Though. <laughs> yeah. Not Wait, a- I'm on 13. Wait. <laughs> right. They'll run away, right? But these are really questions that you want to know. And you would ask a friend, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? So I think first order of business, establish communication and find some things out. Find out who you're with. Find out what they think. You don't, it's amazing how many couples come in here, because I do couples counseling, that have no idea what each other's financial goals are. And they find out the hard way. And it's amazing to watch because, you know, that's number one or number two reason why people break up because they're not on the same page financially or emotionally or socially. One person is an introvert. The other person's an extrovert. One person loves to go to parties. The other person doesn't want to do that ever. Don't you think you might want to know that? Right. Come on, let's go. Right. No? And what about, uh, you know, and I've, of course there are variables and there's every situation's unique, but what's your perspective on uh, becoming sexual and physically intimate with someone uh, Quickly, slowly. Uh, how do you allow that to unfold again with the you know the common shared goal of having a meaningful relationship and not just having fun? Well, if you talk to the young version of me, immediately an often. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because <laughs> just, how many days or months? How many hours? <laughs> just run for daylight. And right. Hope it all works out. Right. Um, but I think I'm a little more circumspect about it now. I would say. You don't understand the beauty of courtship until you start playing it out slowly. The most fun in any relationship is the seduction. It's the most exciting. It's the most interesting. It's the the most charged with pleasure. And I would say, play it out. Play it out slowly. Allow yourself to unwind that experience. Don't jump into bed with somebody. Maybe not for a month. Maybe not for two months. Let yourself enjoy that dynamic tension that, that that sexual tension creates because it's delicious. You know, the anticipation of a pleasure is far greater than the pleasure itself. And so when you recognize that this is a lot of fun and I can play this slowly in a way that we both have great benefit, because if you go slow enough, you're also bonding along the way. And everybody has to raise the stakes. They have to put more on the table 
in order to make that happen. So they got to be more honest. They got to be more forthcoming. They got to be clearer. So I would say play it out slowly because it's the best part of the relationship in the terms of building and, and enjoying pleasure. You know, that advice has been given to me by every uh, elder male in my life that I've had any respect for and is also the advice, uh, incidentally, that those elder males that are in long-term fulfilling successful relationships have advised. Yeah. But it took me a long time well, to I told see you, the validity. Talk, talk to the younger version <laughs> my of My dad was telling me that when I was probably 20, you know. I was yeah. like, oh no, I'll take my time. Yeah, definitely. We'll we'll definitely hit two bars before we get intimate for sure that night. You know what I mean? Probably won't even be tonight, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's yeah, that's that's good stuff. Uh in terms of i I don't from what I've studied of your work, I don't hear you use these vernaculars that I'm about to throw out there uh much, but I'd love to see what your perspective is on some of the things that sort of infect a relationship like um, you know, becoming enmeshed with your partner, losing a sense of self-identity, codependency, uh, having unresolved enmeshment issues or abandoned issues with your family of origin. Uh, what are some of those things that can kind of undermine the potential of a relationship? I think that to the extent that you know yourself, to the extent, you know, I'd never get into a relationship now with someone who wasn't working on themselves. Because I think it's a fool's errand that sooner or later, if, if your partner is not working on themselves, they're going to act out their issues on you. And so I do not willingly sign up for that. Like, no, thank you. You're very nice. Go away. So I think you got to have somebody who's working on themselves. You got to have somebody with some self-awareness. And you've got to be self-aware. You know, the idea that you get, get all your needs filled in a relationship is ridiculous. It's, it's just an imbalance. And what if you knew that relationship was going to fill 20% of your needs? I think you'd have very different expectations. And I'm not saying that's the number. I'm saying look at it in a different way, that you're supposed to be taking care of you. That person is not supposed to be addressing your loneliness. You are. That person is not supposed to be handling your abandonment issues. You are. And we all come in with issues and with baggage. And I think with a great partnership, it's a great collaboration to start working on that. But I think you've got to know yourself. And your partner has to know themselves. Otherwise, they're going to go into pain. And they're going to have an expectation that you should take it away or you should fix it. And that's not possible. The idea, and you know, it's very romantic. What was that Coldplay song, I'll Fix You? <laughs> I was like, oh God, that's going to cause a lot of trouble. Right? It's going to make a lot of therapists a lot of money. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, I'm digging that. So in a sense, we really want to have a sense of autonomy before entering into a relationship and also during that you know, no one can make me feel, quotes, end quotes, a certain way that it's that I'm responsible for the way that I feel and the experience I'm having in life. And so I've got to keep kind of my own side of the street clean, be able to take care of myself so that I'm not approaching a relationship from an addictive, needy, you know, dependent kind of perspective then. Is that yeah. Does that make sense or kind of what you're saying there? Yeah. Yeah. If you're going into a relationship and you're looking for approval, forget it. 
that's going to be a painful ride. If you're self-approving and you go into a relationship, great. So I think you got to be aware of what you're bringing to the table and what you're working on personally. And to, to the best of your ability, you got to be aware of what they're working on. You know, to have a great dialogue, to have an emotionally open relationship where everyone's sorting through their stuff. Well, that's a great collaboration. But again, in the beginning of the relationship, everyone's hiding their stuff. They don't want to be seen. I think that uh, I, I want to get that list of your 50 things, but I'm, I'm sensing in, in those 50 questions that you're going to ask or 50 things you're going to look at in terms of pre-qualifying uh, a relationship would be an alignment of values, you know, the things that each person uh, holds in a high degree of relevance and importance, right? So the main one, perhaps, would you say, would be uh, each individual's willingness and desire to work on themselves as people first and foremost, so that you have that in common. I mean, is there not, is it not a lost cause if one person's super into spirituality, personal development, they're just moving forward, charging ahead, growing, growing, growing. And the other person's like, I'm cool. I'm just going to watch Netflix and like eat ice cream and make money. <laughs> right. I mean, there's, <laughs> Oh no, that should work. <laughs> so, so how would one determine, I guess it's just through communication, <laughs> but how would, you know, when you meet someone to me, it's like one of the first orders of business is kind of to sort out, uh, what their goals are in terms of their own inner development to see if there's alignment there. If, you're, if your mission on earth is, is at least um, your two train tracks are kind of next to each other, even though they might be a different path. Yeah. You know, there are some questions that I'd want to know the answer to. Uh, how do you feel about personal growth? Uh, what do you think of a higher power? What, you know, are, what are the lessons you've been working on in your life? You know, how do you feel about money? How do you feel about sex? How often is too often? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Whatever you want to explore, because, you know, it's a bit of a joke, but not that people can be sexually misaligned, where somebody runs hot sexually and that's their nature, and somebody else runs cool. And so you've just built in a conflict if you're not aware in some way. Or if you can't reconcile it in some way. Conflict is something I wanted to cover next. Perfect segue. You're reading my mind. So when we... When they also give out the 10 rules of conflict. Oh, well, okay. Let's get, it, let's get into some of those. Uh, <laughs> this guy hasn't read my book. I think... Yeah, it's, it's rare too that I don't have the opportunity nah, before I interview someone. But I guess this is going to be the impetus for that. I get the sense uh, that a lot of people don't realize that it's very important that you know how to fight, you know, that you know how to communicate and argue. What are some useful tools for understanding one another in the context of a relationship and, and you know, dissolving conflicts in a productive way? I would say that if you're going to have a conflict, prepare for it and make it a conscious intention to give up being right and to give up looking good. Put those two, hang those two on the door before you enter the room. Give up being right, give up looking good. The next thing I would say is attack the issues, not each other. No personal attacks, because that's the most toxic thing in the world. And there is so much said in anger that can never be taken back. Even after the conflict is resolved, those things can scar. 
And the more scar tissue you put on a relationship, the less durable it is. And so if you're in a passionate relationship where you battle early and often, be aware that you're putting scar tissue and you're changing the longevity of that relationship. You're, you're actually taking some oxygen out of it. So I think take the other person's point of view, at least be able to manage it. One of the exercises I give is report and reflect, where one person says what they want to be heard, and the other person reflects it back as objectively as they can without adding to it or spinning it or, you know, as in, I think I heard you say X, Y, and Z. And so now you have the beginning of clear communication instead of kind of reaction or interpretation. Take times out. You know, everybody gets resentful about taking a time out. Like, oh, you can't pull that on me now. And the reality is, yes, pull that on each other. Take time. Take space. Walk away. The emotional state of somebody in a, a conflict is equal to a soldier in combat. Wow. And so when wow. you realize the heightened state of emotion that you're in, you'd better walk away. Give it 20 minutes. It can take up to a day to climb down emotionally from that heightened state. And so you can't take 20 minutes to chill, to cool out. So I think be aware that there are absolutely ways to fight and ways not to fight. And that, you know, if you're smart, you'll set that early on in a relationship. This is how we do it, okay? I know it's corny, I know it's stupid, but can we agree to this? Uh, that sounds brilliant. I've uh, I've had some experience with that style of communication, sort of the Imago model of, you know, this is what's going on with me. You say it and then the other person repeats it back, that kind of thing. It does take, the, like you said, some discipline and discussion and framework just to agree that that's how you're going to do it, which can be half the battle. But it's amazing how convoluted the message will get just it's like the telephone game but there's only two people (laughs) it's like so you're luke i'm pissed off because you said you were gonna da 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 and then you didn't thing and then i go so what you're saying is you hate my guts and you want to break up what you know what i mean it's like where did that you know how did that get misconstrued to such a large or such a high degree it's really strange really ran with the ball right yeah and it, it you're so right when the emotions are hot it's especially for me i mean this is always my experience it's it's almost like when i'm emotional my brain gets filled with sand or something like i cannot logically make sense of anything anymore yeah because you retreat from that prefrontal cortex back into the reptile brain and you're fighting in a different way your perception is no longer the same yeah so so, so that communication style then uh do you say that that that's useful because even if your cognition's a little wonky because your brain's full of all these emotional chemicals and whatever's causing that, that if you can have the wherewithal to repeat back what the person says, then that'll you can... bring you back ah, okay. to that prefrontal cortex. Oh, cool. Bring you back, you know, to the objective mind. That's neat. Yeah. I, yeah. Never, I didn't know how that works. I just, oh, it's having, a good trick. having experimented with it a bit, have found it to be effective. And I'm always just dismayed at how, you know, my brain just will stop working when there's too much emotion going on. Yeah, it retreats. You're in fight or flight. You're not thinking. Interesting. People can't shoot straight from two feet away in that state of mind. You think you're going to be accurate in your thoughts? 
No way. Wow. So that's part of the the military training model then is learning how to perform under that yeah. that sense of stress then. Yeah. Wow. How to keep your vision out. So I guess lo- love is war could perhaps have some truth to <laughs> relating maybe not love because love is so pure but relating can be war uh, relationship can be the other thing i'd say about conflict is that discuss issues when you have a lot of goodwill when you're feeling good with each other not when you're in heightened states of emotion you know the worst thing in the world is trying to sort something out when you're pissed off or when they're pissed off you know Wait until you're in a state of goodwill. You're having a good time. It's fun. You're building enough emotional equity so that you can have these conversations. Because if you go in and the well is dry, before you know it, you're going to escalate from zero to 10 and you're not going to be able to communicate. Oh, that's a useful tool. I like that. So when you do your... Give us a little bit of a rundown of what you do here at the Paradox Process. I was looking at the calendar and I realized there was a one-night workshop on the 26th that I just missed. Oh, you would have... Yeah. yeah, and I was in town. So next time I come, I'm going to preemptively plan that in. But then I saw that in November, which this will probably air after this has already happened. So the people right. listening, you can go to the next one. But I saw there's like a kind of a multi-week Wednesday evening relationship course. What what are what's up with some of the different you know offerings that you guys have here? Yeah, we've been working with the Open Center and doing some courses and some lectures. Uh, I do the four week course because I have a lot of information to impart, and I want them to get it. And I do it in, a, in an experiential way, where I am teaching them. Let's say one week is about actually one week is about communication. And so I will start talking to them about communication and giving them exercises to do and actually breaking them down into accountability partners because we're not accountable to ourselves. But if you have a partner who you have to do the work with, suddenly you're on your best behavior like, okay, I will do this. And so you get a lot of work done. So we cover a topic like communication and I do some processing, some paradox process with it to clear the emotional charge. And I get them connected to communication, to conflict, to building relationship, to how to express love. And each week is a different topic that I take them through. Now, here's what's interesting, that the goal is for people to create a better relationship, whether to create one that you want to be in for the people that aren't in a relationship or to fix the one that you are in. And so at the end of the course seven new relationships started. Wow. Yeah. But here's the funny part. Here's the kicker. The girl that was editing the video, she kept having to listen to it over and over again, right? She didn't even take the course. She was just editing it. At the end of it, she started a new relationship. Interesting. So she got the sort of residual effect (laughs) from hearing it so many times. And I thought, wow, good caram shot. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I wonder that with the the uh, guys at Podcast Masters that edit my podcast go, and they do a number of different shows. I go, man, these guys must learn a lot. I hope they're interested in the topics covered because it's a lot of hours. So outside of uh, a workshop that that deals with relationship and and what you just described, how does the actual paradox process work? Is that a one on one thing, or are there groups of people? We do it in both ways. I run groups here every week. And I do individuals. Somebody generally comes in and they, 
here, here's my best client, somebody who is successful and wants to get somewhere in their lives and somewhere they're in their own way, whether it's, you know, ego or conflict or whatever it is, they're stuck and I will get them unstuck. I'll find out where and how they're in their own way and get those obstacles out of the way in order to move them forward and get them successful in life. That's an ostensible goal, getting where they want. What I really am teaching them is how to manage life, how to manage their issues, how to manage this self, how to get out of your own way, and how to use this tool on your own. You know, if I do my work right, it's planned obsolescence. I teach somebody how to do it, and they can do it on their own. And that's what I love about it, that at three in the morning when they're stuck or they have an issue, they can work on it on their own and work their way through it. So I take somebody who has some kind of motivation that wants to get somewhere, and I help them get out of their own way and teach them tools in order to continue to do so. Cool. That's awesome, man. Well, as we come to, uh, yeah, now I'm, of course, I'm sitting there going, hmm, I want to do that. I want to. Oh, I'll give you a session. You'll love it. <laughs> that's cool. I man. guarantee you'll that's love cool. it. That's cool. No, I, I can tell already. I mean, that's why I was motivated to come interview you. I said, this guy's onto something here. I love this kind of stuff. I mean, I've benefited from so many different modalities that, you know, find ways to. But I'll guarantee you a couple you of things. Yeah, what's that? You will laugh through the session. We will have fun. <laughs> Good. Well, if you're not laughing, you're not growing, man. That's I agree. The thing can't take this stuff too seriously. Totally. It's, it becomes unfun then. Uh, so in closing here today, Thomas, uh, you've taught me and the listeners a lot. Who have been three teachers or teachings that you might recommend they go look up to learn from as well? I think the first thing that turned me on to seeing the mind in a different way was a guy named Ken Kais. He wrote The Handbook to Higher Consciousness. And it's really kind of a kitschy 60s book. I was a hippie, so it spoke to me. But he talked about the mind as a biocomputer. And that was fascinating to me, that it's programmed, that the reason that we have these upsets and we kind of repeat our patterns and so forth is that it's all programming. And it kind of blew my whole thinking open in terms of how do you interact with the mind in a way that you make a difference. So I think that was huge. Uh, meeting Roger Bell and kind of having that connection where we had the same goal and the same dream and the same idea to challenge this essential pain that we're in and transform it. I think that was huge for me. And, you know, I'd have to go back to the old masters in terms of things that I've read, Eric Fromm on The Art of Loving and um, even Dale Carnegie and, and, you know, all of those, all those standards where, okay, well, they, they at least had the behaviors that created the feelings and emotions that you wanted to kind of dwell on. Now, how do you get to those organically? So I think, oh, another crackpot that I love is Werner Erhardt, the guy who oh, Est, yeah. started Est. Yeah. You know, he was brilliant and kind of a madman in a way. And I love that because... I have to stay irreverent. That's the nature of me. But I am a sincere explorer of wisdom and knowledge. And so I thought he's a good model for that. 
That's cool. Thank you for the bonus names. Oftentimes guests get really stumped by the three recommendations oh. and they're like, they think of one and they're like, I, I don't know, man, that's it. I'm out. So thank you. That's good. We're going to put all those in the show notes. And uh, those listening can, of course, get the show notes by just going to uh, lukestory.com forward slash newsletter and we'll email them to you every week. Real easy. Uh, speaking of websites and URLs, where can people find you, your work um, online, social media, et cetera? www.paradoxprocess.org. And from there, I think you can find out all about the workshops and the social media and join our mailing list and so forth and so on. We're on Facebook and Twitter as well. Paradox Experience. Perfect. Yeah. And there's also, I just want to point people to, there's some great blog posts that you've written uh, on the site too, which I found to be really useful. So, Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, so thank you so much for joining me today on the Lifestylist Podcast. And I look forward to uh, coming back here and exploring more of what you guys do. And I promise you a free session. Awesome, man. Thank you. The benefit of having a podcast. (laughs) I love it. All right. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. Well, hopefully this episode's encouraging you to take your life and your love to the next level in 2019. Thomas M. Jones, if you ever hear this, thanks so much for coming on the show, dude. I had a great time kicking it with you. Thank you for dropping your knowledge. I'm already applying some of Thomas's lessons here in terms of relationships to my own life. And I got to say, man, he's really onto something. So if you're in a relationship, you can take some of the things that um, Thomas taught us. And if you're not, you might want to consider using some of them as you go because it's working for me. I'm having a great time. I also like the idea just of, of really getting down to what's blocking us from taking our life to the next level. Every single one of us, no matter how much we think we have our act together, have things in our subconscious that are limiting us. And I'm all about discovering them, ferreting those little blocks out and discarding them, especially in 2019. And this year is all about evolution. It's all about cleansing For me, one of my main underlying goals as we move into um, the rest of this month is just really working on my relationships and love and connection. I I, I want more of a sense of tribe, more of a sense of community, which is why I'd love for you to go. (laughs) Wow, that segued really nice, actually, as a little plug for my Instagram again. uh, No, I'd really, I'd love for you to follow me on Instagram. I want to interact with people virtually and in real life. I'll also be doing a lot more events this year. I'll be plugging those soon. And uh, you can, of course, come out and hang out with me at one of those, I'm hoping. And if you want to take a deeper dive into the world of the Lifestylist podcast, feel free to join our Facebook group. You know, I've got a group about 3,000 strong over there. And I'm not even a huge user of Facebook. I just basically use it for groups. My other business, School of Style, has some Facebook groups. And that's how I learned how to really create a strong community that not only gets to interact with me, but also with the other fans of the show. So just get into Facebook and search The Lifestylist Podcast, request to join, and uh, we'll let you in. And once you get in there, you're free to ask questions. And I think like the listeners in there actually answer more questions than I do. I'll log in there and I'm like, yep, I agree with whatever they post. You know, everyone's kind of on the same page and people are always asking about the latest biohacks and health you know, supplements and practices and all of this kind of stuff. So um, between the Instagram and the Facebook group, uh, I think there's a lot of potential there for us all to interact and support one another. So there's that. Speaking of supporting one another, let's support our lovely sponsors. We've got Beekeepers Naturals. You can go to beekeepersnaturals.com, enter the code lifestylist and save 15%. 
I've been nursing this little jar of cacao honey that they sent me. I'm, I'm doing it like half a teaspoon at a time. I'm almost out. I'm, I'm kind of bummed. They are literally the best bee products in the world. I mean, I can't find anything better. They're just, their suite of products is insane. Beekeepersnaturals.com. The code's lifestylist save 15%. Then speaking of removing blocks, whoa. Those of you that heard my recent episode with Lacey Phillips from Free and Native, you already know that this is where the magic happens. And um, we've got a little discount for you for the Free and Native programs too. These online programs are super affordable already, but she's given us 10% off with the code Luke. If you just go to freeandnative.com forward slash Luke, that's freeandnative.com forward slash Luke. If you dive into Lacey's courses, honestly, uh, I think you will... You I, Actually, I can say you will make more money and you will have better relationships, period. She is onto some crazy voodoo witchery over there. I love her program. I've been doing it for a while. And it's funny that I think it was like the day after she interviewed me, sorry, the day after I interviewed her, rather, she's about to interview me next week on her podcast, which I believe is called Unblocked. Don't quote me on that, but I think so. I'm sure it's fantastic. I need to listen to it. So I'm about to go on that piece. But the day after she left, I got this random check for, I think it was like $3,500 in my mail. I mean, it was random because I didn't know it was coming. I knew who it was from, obviously. It was addressed to me too. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I was like, damn, Lacey, she is onto something here. You know, it comes over for an interview and this company just sends me kind of a really fat random check. It was amazing. So I don't know if it was related. I mean, a skeptic could say, well, the check was already in the mail before she was even at your house. But anyway, if nothing else, it got me excited about having a financially prosperous 2019. I have some big financial goals this year and uh, Lacey is helping me hit them. And if you go to freeandnative.com forward slash Luke, she can help you hit yours too. Then while we're getting rich, let's just make sure that we look beautiful. You don't want to F around guys and put garbage on your skin. You know, there's enough garbage in the air and the water and the food. You don't want to be piling on chemicals onto your mug. So that's where alaturanaturals.com comes in. My friend Andy Nilo has been on the show. I think he was, man, he was way back. He was like in the first 20 episodes. And he is obsessed with natural skincare products. So that's alaturanaturals.com. And if you use the code lifestylist over there, you're going to save 20% and get free shipping. Shipping? What is shipping? Is that a thing? I definitely know there's such a thing as shipping. Yeah, and that's right. If you, <laughs> if you enter the code lifestylist, you're going to save 20% and get free shipping within the United States. That's alaturanaturals.com. And, you know, once again, I always say this with the products I plug, I use Andy's stuff every single day, straight up, period. That's it. The night cream, the face cream, and every once in a while, even his famous like flagship product, the face mask. It's just, you know, that's a little project. You got to make the little mud mask, get put it on. You have to remember to wash it off. You know, it's a little bit more labor intensive than just throwing some some lotion on your face. And I think uh, that's just about it, you guys. I'm just having a blast doing the show. You know, I was worried when I started the Lifestylist podcast, June 6, 2016, that I'd do a few episodes and be like, womp, womp, not into it, bored, on to the next one. And for some crazy reason, that hasn't happened. In fact, I keep getting more psyched about doing this show. In fact, I'm so psyched about next week's episode with Kim Anami, number 186, Passion and Pleasure, the Ultimate Sex episode. Getting to talk about things like that publicly is exhilarating on a number of levels because it's kind of embarrassing and it pushes the boundaries of my you know, 
comfort level, I guess, in terms of being publicly very open in conversation. But it's also really exciting because we're at a great place in time right now. You know, the old dinosaur mainstream media moguls are dying out. And that's such a great thing because so many of them are just fake and whack and completely controlled by multinational corporations that are greedy and evil. And, you know, so much of the information that gets filtered down to us little people is just straight propaganda. And, you know, after working in Hollywood for 17 years, I just, I've seen the backside of media, um, so to speak, and I'm not into it. I'm into independent media. And that's why I love doing this podcast. And for the time being, I'm not beholden to any advertisers or any agenda other than my own and what I think is interesting and uplifting to mankind. So it's really an exciting time to be alive. You know, I'm just so grateful and appreciative to have this long form media where, you know, if I feel like sitting here and talking for seven and a half minutes, like I have, I can do it. No one's shutting me down so far. Um, You know, it's just a matter of um, increasing the listenership, you know, but with great loyal listeners like you sharing the episodes with their friends, it will continue to grow. And I promise to you this year that I'm going to bring you bigger and better and more interesting guests than ever. And I'm going to work so hard to bring the most cutting edge information to you in the most entertaining and engaging and passionate way possible. So thank you so very much for listening to the show. If you were in front of me, I'd give you a big hug and a big mwah. Thanks so much. We'll be back next Tuesday with Kim Anami. This episode of the Lifestylist Podcast was produced by podcastmasters.net.